Well then, dear brothers and sisters in Christ, grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father and our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. So normally when we see Jesus and the Pharisees encountering one another, it's usually pretty rough. Jesus is God in the flesh, and as God in the flesh, he is also truth and life in the flesh. But yet he has to deal with these religious leaders who are struggling with sin and stubbornness. And so when Jesus pushes them with the truth, they usually fight back with their sin. They're more concerned with the many other things of this world of following their laws, the, even the laws of God that they have manipulated. They rejoice more in following those laws than they do in being a child of God. But in John chapter 3, we have this interesting scene where one of the Pharisees, of all people, one of the Pharisees comes and sits with Jesus and has this very important conversation with him. He begins by calling him rabbi, which means teacher. So he knows that this, this Jesus guy, there's something to him. He begins by saying that we know that you come from God. No one can do all that you're doing unless they're from God. It seems here that Nicodemus is actually trying to learn from and hear from this Jesus and is trying to give him the due honor and respect. But look at the gospel lesson. It's like Jesus ignores him when he says that. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Realistically, Nicodemus is very confused. First off, what does it mean to be born again? You might be familiar with the born again movement that we have, that we saw in uh, American Christianity uh, beginning in the 60s. We hear of born again Christians. I remember a professor telling me a story um, from the seminary when he would uh, talk to a born-again Christian and everything in their life, he explained, it, it sort of focused all on that one day when they were baptized. All on that one day, maybe it wasn't even baptism, but when they had come to faith, when they had turned from their sinful ways. But isn't there a little bit more to this in that? Well, what's really going on with this whole concept of being born again? And so we, we watch this conversation of Jesus and Nicodemus. And Jesus specifically talks about being born again. And like I said, Nicodemus is confused. It's a confusing statement. This is the first time he's ever heard it. For our American ears, it's pretty obvious. He's talking about baptism. But for Nicodemus, he's like, what do you mean? I'm, I'm an old man. How, how, what? How am I going to be born again? How can I be in a, my mother's womb again? It's a strange and rather, and rather gross image that conjures up in the mind. But Jesus is referring to being born again of the water and of the spirit. And on this Holy Saturday... As we continue in our, in our Easter journey, we continue by reflecting on baptism, as you're probably pretty well aware of by now. 
You see, we have walked with Jesus as he celebrated the Passover meal as a good and faithful Jewish man, but he also changed that meal into something new and special for us, as we see on Monday, Thursday. But right after that meal, they go to the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus prays so hard with tears running down his face. But we know what he must have to go through. He is betrayed, arrested. He is tried, he is mocked, beaten, and crucified, and he dies. And today on this Holy Saturday, we stand by the door of the tomb with Jesus still buried. But we are doing so knowing what comes next. Knowing that Jesus goes from death to life. And so it is in this time of baptism or reflection on baptism, that we reflect how God has brought us from death to life. Because as we see in Scripture, as we're probably fairly familiar with in our own hearts and lives, there's a point in time where we have been separated from God, where we're apart from God. As Paul puts it, are, are things that, that we are hostile to God. As Jesus says in, in the John lesson today, that our minds are set on things of the flesh. We are born of the flesh, not of the spirit. And so being hostile to God with our minds on the flesh, we actually have become God's enemies. We, who had just, just talked about renouncing the rebellious things of this world, were those rebellious people at one point in time. And it's terrible we are creatures of the Creator. We are children of the Heavenly Father. How can this possibly be? And it's because of sin. The sin that we have inherited from our, our family, our ancient mother and father of Adam and Eve, the sins that we ourselves continually fall into, no matter how hard we try to stay away from that temptation, there's that sin that always pulls us in happens to every single one of us. And it also makes us hostile to God, which seems strange to our ears, but really it's just how we continually break the first commandment. The first commandment saying, don't have any other gods, we say, well, yeah, but what about this that's a little bit more important right now? I think my family's a little bit more important right now, God. Well, I think, I think what's going on in my job is a little bit more important right now. That makes us hostile to God because he is in charge. He is at number one, but our sinful ways want to keep whatever we want at number one. What's very important about this, though, is how much God hates that. And his hatred of sin actually causes him to show great love. Because as we heard in our gospel reading, the, the famous, famous John 3.16, which is probably famous because of a couple guys holding up some signs at baseball games. I remember that, watching that on TV as a kid. Seeing a person holding up this sign, John 3.16. This is the love that we have been shown. And what's important is for you to understand that it's not for God love the world so much. It's that God loves the world. And this is how he expresses his love. That's how the Greek uh, literally is, is God loves the world. 
And he thusly does this. His hatred of sin causes him to love his world by dying for us. By going to a place of punishment and death so that we would not perish but have eternal life. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but so that he would be condemned for us. Through this strange act, love is given. Sin is destroyed. Death has no power. The devil is made foolish. And most importantly out of all of this is how God solves all of these issues and brings us back to him. But yet at the time of the conversation between Nicodemus and Jesus, sin and death haven't been paid for, right? So how can Jesus say these things about God loving the world, about being born again? Well, it's the same mentality that he has in Gethsemane. When Jesus, as we reflected last night on Good Friday, when Jesus went to the Garden of Gethsemane, his mind was set on the cross. First thing he says to God is, don't make me do this. But yet in good, holy perfection says, but not my will, your will be done. It's in this same mentality that Jesus works now in in this lesson from John 3. When he is speaking with Nicodemus, he is still intently focused on the cross. He knows what he must go through. And so he speaks of being born again, knowing how God is going to work through him in order to bring that blessing so that all might be born again. Every year on Easter, we celebrate something that happened thousands of years ago. But yet that doesn't mean it's any less effective. This powerful event has happened for all people of all times, of all places, where we are changed from being hated, where we are changed from being hating, to being the most precious children of God. No longer God's enemies, but God's children. And it's all because Jesus himself goes from times like these with Nicodemus where he's teaching to times when other Pharisees are condemning him to death, where other Pharisees and scribes and other good Jewish men are mocking him while he hangs and dies on the cross. But out of all of this work is that even more important transition that happens on Easter morning when we will look in and we will see that another transition has happened as Jesus is brought from death back to life, as a tomb that was once filled is now empty. And because of God's loving generosity, we have life. We have life, and not just that, but our lives now have changed. The tomb for us is... Still sad, of course, but is not the end. Our tombs change from being places of death to being places of waiting, as we now wait for the perfection of God. Because we know that there will be a day when rotting corpses are not found in tombs, 
but bodies full of life are found. And people will all rise from the grave because of this love and life that Jesus brings to the world. But the important question is how do we get it? These words of gospel are so wonderful, and I want to be freed from sin and death. I hate the sin that I struggle with. I hate the fact that death is still a reality. So how do I receive this eternal life? Where do I get this gift? And if we are hostile to God, if we are, because of sin, made God's enemies, how do we transition? How does it all change? And how does this death and resurrection of Jesus get applied to us to release us? And it's through what we call the means of grace. Means being a a way that something is given and grace being the gift of salvation of God's love. In our church, we we talk of a few means of grace, but especially in, in Holy Week, we focus on two of them. On Monday, Thursday, we focus on the Lord's Supper, where the body and blood of Jesus is given and shed for the forgiveness of sins. It is a means, a vessel, to provide this grace to us. But today, we also see another of holy baptism, another vessel that brings this grace into us. But just like we did with Monday, Thursday, let's take an outsider's look on what's happening. Because, being honest, you have a person, you have some water, you have a pastor, pastor says some words, splashes some water, and then boom, baptized, right? I don't have a special vial of water. It's out of the, the, the sink in the vestry. The only special thing about that water is we make sure it's not cold for baptism. That's the only special thing we do with the water for baptizing a person. So looking outside in on this, what, what are you doing? It's weird. How can this possibly give forgiveness? What could this possibly do besides covering a person in water? And this is where First Peter is really helpful. Because what Peter does in chapter 3 is he links baptism to the suffering and death and resurrection of Jesus. We see this this link with the ark, with going down to the saints, and that's very confusing. And really, as as I've looked into this more and more, there's not a very clear answer as to what all of this means. But what is clear is that in all of this, In the death and resurrection of Jesus, as he goes down and and declares the victory to the, the people in captivity, it's all done in his victory. And baptism, which now corresponds to that, that now saves us. That as we see Jesus die, rise, and ascend, our baptism now saves us. How? How does that all work? Because this is kind of confusing. Well, what Peter is showing us is that baptism's not a removal of dirt, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So, baptism, we, we literally steal from Greek. And to, to wash something, like to wash your hands, 
is to baptize them in Greek. We just take this into English and, and just use it as baptized because, I don't know, it sounds cooler, I guess. But really, what Peter is saying is this baptism is not washing to get dirt off of your body, but actually as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because Jesus, when he ascends into heaven and sits at the right hand of God, we hear in other places of scripture, like uh, Romans 8, that Jesus is our intercessor, our go-between. And so what this work of baptism does is we do this together in a special way. And as Peter shares, it's an appeal to the Father to say that we want to be cleansed from our sins. And this doesn't take any time to process. Because in this gift, God blesses us. In this gift, we are not only just given the forgiveness of sins, but as we see elsewhere in Scripture, God's very Holy Spirit. And we are born again out of this water with God's Spirit as a new child of God. All, as Peter shows us in, chapter, in verse 21, all through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. For me, whenever I want to understand baptism better, I always go to Romans 6, where Paul writes, do you not know that all, who, all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too may walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Baptism takes us into the water and in a somewhat of a morbid way drowns and kills us. As we read in, in the small catechism, it, it kills that old sinful Adam, that old sin that we have inherited. But then right there in the water with us is God as he is pulling us out of the water now to new life. That as we are gasping for air in this new life, running, coming up from the water, we are given the breath of God's own Holy Spirit. Paul and Peter both take this seemingly human work that we're doing and show us how this is one of the biggest and most important ways that God blesses us with his grace. One of the most important places where God blesses us with eternity. But the important question always comes up, especially as we look at other church bodies, is where's the power in all of this? Whose work is this actually? Because, again, if you're an outsider looking in, you're seeing a pastor pouring some water on a person's head, likely. Or you're seeing a deacon or something like that. Or you're seeing some random person that you have no idea who it is, and they're just throwing water at each other. And then somebody is saying some, some words. So where is the power in everything that's happening here? Right? Is it, is it the actual act of doing things? Is it the water that we have? Is it the word that is said? Is it the, the pastor himself? Is, is it the, the person? It's all God. All of this is God. Because in order to be led to the waters of holy baptism, we are led there in faith. 
trusting that God will bless us through this work. That gift of faith is given to us by God as he reaches out to us and calls us in many different ways to bring us to these places so that we might be sealed in this. The words that are spoken, it is God's word. The servant doing the work is God's servant. The person receiving the work is God's child. The water, again, it's God's. All of this is God's. And as Paul and Peter already explained it, it's all done in the death and resurrection of Jesus. And this baptized person, this pastor, these waters, all of it is done through God. Just like Holy Communion, we look at it and we see, it's a weird little cracker and a little shot of wine. We look at baptism and we say, it's, it's this weird work where they're just throwing water at each other. It's, it's an unplayful water fight. What's going on? But yet, through these things, God chooses to work. He provides his grace to us. And as Jesus says, we do this because we must be born again. We must receive new life. Because sin only brings death. And to get into the kingdom of God, you must be freed from death. But again, God in his love doesn't just say, well, figure it out. He says, here's how you do it. And it's all given to us so that we might die and rise with Christ. And we might travel with him from, from Gethsemane to Golgotha to the tomb to the resurrection. All of this to be born again, to be born anew, to be born as God's child, to be born free from sin. But many of you listening are already baptized. As we said these words, we were reminding ourselves of the vows that we took in our baptism to say that I, in faith, am rejecting all of these old things. And so be warned, dear friends. You are not given this freedom and this new life to do whatever you want. You are not given these things so that you can just sin freely. But you are given these things to have life. And so seize onto this baptismal life. As our brother Martin Luther said, we daily die to sin, we daily rise to life. As uh, we it learned this evening on page 3 of our bulletin, the very bottom, baptism indicates that the old Adam in us should by daily contrition and repentance be drowned and, and die with all sins and evil desires. And that the new man should rise daily, rise to live before God. This is a daily thing. If you were baptized as a child, every single day of your life you should be remembering your baptism. And if you haven't been doing it very often, that's fine. Now is a great time to start. Every day when you hop into the shower, you go to wash your hands, you go out and water your flowers, you see the rain, you see a stream, you boil pasta, whatever. Any time and every time you remember, or any time and every time you see water, you remember that you're baptized. 
and that you have gone through the waters, not so that you would be morbid and reflect on how you die, but so that you see how you have been brought from death to life through the waters of holy baptism, and then live it. Live it in singing praises. Live it by knowing that when you are tempted by sin, temptation, the devil, whatever it might be, that you are baptized and you have been sealed into God's holy family. Every day, remember your baptisms, knowing that through this, with Christ, because of Christ, you have life. Amen, brothers and sisters.